Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Hi, everybody. I'm Katherine Pierce, and I'm the Poet Laureate for the state of Mississippi. Welcome to the Mississippi Poetry Podcast, a podcast where poetry comes alive for listeners. Across the country and the world, poets are writing right now and creating vibrant, important poems that enlighten, entertain, challenge, and comfort. Some of these incredible poets are writing right here in Mississippi. Each episode of the Mississippi Poetry Podcast will feature a different poet with a Mississippi connection. We'll hear a poem, chat a bit, and maybe learn a fun fact or two. I am thrilled to welcome C. Lee McGinnis to the podcast today. C. Lee McGinnis is a poet, short story writer, essayist, author of eight books, former editor of Black Magnolia's literary journal, Prince Scholar, and retired English instructor at Jackson State University. He is also a former first runner-up of the Amiri Baraka Sonia Sanchez Poetry Award, sponsored by North Carolina State AT&T, and the author of The Lyrics of Prince and Brother Hollis, The Sankofa of a Movement Man. Seely, thank you so much for taking time to talk poems with me today. Oh, Doc Pierce, thank you. First of all, thank you for creating this platform, and thank you for having me. I'm loving it. Thank you so much. I'm really excited that you're on. So what are you going to be reading for us today? You want to set it up and go ahead and, and get into it? Yeah, I'll, I'll just uh, set it up and then we can talk right after I read it. Great. So this is a poem I wrote many years ago. It's titled Mississippi-like. What is it to be Mississippi? Where Capitol streets cross cotton fields and Margaret's Jubilee jams with Eudora's Festival and there are college cuts controversy and the Klan with plenty of revolution, religion, red, white tomatoes and rebels, ruby racist rags. This is all my Mississippi. It's little boys putting dirt in abandoned tires and then rolling those tires by little girls in their Sunday dresses. It's hanging out at Big Sam's Juke Joint on Saturday night and juking the sign me up on Sunday morning. It's picking wild berries and stealing Mr. Wilson's plums. It's mowing everybody's yard because your mama said so. It's where time out means mama taking a break from whooping your leathery hide and the thought of a swarming strap still causes you to awake in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. It's Ross Burnett damning the doorway of education and James Meredith bulldozing over his ideology. It's the Sovereignty Commission playing hide and go seek with the lives of invisible citizens while ebony voices declare we shall not, we shall not be moved under the salacious sights of rifles and German shepherds. What is it to be Mississippi? It's no matter how highbrow we get, we still have hot sauce on the table when we eat it. Having a special jawbone from being double voice, being bilingually lingual enough to talk with two tongues, a Democrat on TV and a Dixocrat under the heel wearing black suits in the day and white sheets at night. What is it to be Mississippi? It's knowing that decency, courage, and forgiveness are not a three-piece suit that can be removed when they are low, low, no longer fashionable. That's the Mississippi in you. It's when you open the door for a woman, not as a prelude to a rendezvous, but because women are the fertile soil of our futures. That's the Mississippi in you. It's when a family reunion ain't nothing but a Sunday dinner. That's the Mississippi in you. Or when you send a plate over to Miss Mary's house because all of her children took the Exodus train north and she can't navigate the stairs like she used to. That's the Mississippi in you. When you go to school because education is a sledgehammer to knock holes into the walls of injustice and oppression. That's the Mississippi in you. 
when you vote, even though there are two flapjack politicians on both sides of the ballot and the concept of a statesman is nothing more than a mascot for Delta State, yet you pull the lever anyway because Mega's blood is the only registration card to be. That's the Mississippi in you. We're being baptized in the blood refers to the plasma of Jesus and the crimson of the civil rights movement. That's the Mississippi in you. When you speak to people whom you don't even know as you pass them on the streets, that's the Mississippi in you. Then after speaking, you ask, who are your folks, baby? That's the Mississippi in you. Or when you see a stranger with a familiar face and ask him, baby, are you Miss Booth and May Johnson, boy, who lived over the track under the hill, had that daughter married that Williams, boy, family owned the store next to the sawmill inn? That's the Mississippi in you. Or when you got a whole, whole lot of cousins, and your mom and dad ain't got no brothers and sisters, that's the Mississippi in you. When you stand because a woman approaches your table, that's the Mississippi in you. When you refuse to call a woman after 10 p.m. or anything but her name, that's the Mississippi in you. When loving your fellow man as you love yourself is your political platform and feeding little Leroy is your social welfare program, that's the Mississippi in you. When you pay your bills, despite them vampire interest rates, not because you're scared of colorless collectors, or, but because your granddaddy's word was as solid as the earth and your daddy's word was as true as the seasons and you don't want to drive down the value of your family name by being as unreliable as a politician's promise one day after the election, that's the Mississippi in you. And when you do unto others as you would have them do unto you because it pleases God and your grandma. That's the Mississippi in you. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much. Oh, I love that. God, it's so great to hear you read that too. I read it on the page, but hearing you read it is just, I mean, oh, thank you. That was fantastic. So can you share something about the writing of that poem? Anything you want to tell us? That poem, there were three aspects that correlated into the writing of that poem. The first, and you'll know this as a young writer, as a young writer traveling around, I would always get the same question, like, what's Mississippi like? Right. And the way they would ask the question, I knew I could replace Mars with Mississippi, right? So it'd be like, what's Mars like, right? And it would be funny, like they said, what's Mississippi like? And then they'll step back, because they don't want to get that Mississippi on them, right? So that was the first one. So I, knew, I knew I wanted to write a poem, because there there's so many great Mississippi poems. So I just wanted to write a poem in that tradition so that I can say, this is what Mississippi is like. And then next, in doing that, I wanted the poem to encapsulate Bob Moses, right, the, the great civil rights uh, SNCC leader. Uh, his quote about Mississippi, Bob Moses said that when you're in Mississippi, the rest of the world seems unreal. And when you're in the rest of the world, Mississippi seems unreal. So I wanted to encapsulate that into the poem. And then third, I wanted to write a poem that reaches for the level of Margaret Walker Alexander's For My People. Right, that poem, it shows the reader everything one needs to know about Black people, right? For my people is the perfect history lesson in verse. And so finally, to accomplish those three goals, I wanted to provide the most vivid imagery to paint this picture in a way that it could be understood on multiple levels, right? Intellectually and emotionally, but also individually and collectively, right? It, it, I wanted to be a poem where, you know, it could create discussion about history Mm -hmm. But it was also a poem that regardless of your side of the fence or your political demographic, even your understanding of history, that was something that if you were a Mississippian and then later a Southerner, it would resonate with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think that you're right, the details that you've got in there, it's, they're so specific and it's that specificity that makes the whole thing just 
feels so sharp and so crystal clear and just really kind of pulls you in. Um, but I like too what you were saying about wanting it to both kind of touch on history and feel really big and really all-encompassing, but it also feels really sort of personal and focused and individual. And I think that's really, it's really amazing. I, I love that poem and I love, I love the work you're doing in it. Thank you so much for reading that. That was really oh, wonderful you. to hear. Could you share what piece of advice? I'm sure you have lots of advice, but if you had to pick one piece of advice that you could give to poets who are starting out or folks who are already writing, but want to do more of it or want to get better at it, what is something that, that you would tell them or you would suggest to them? I would say be a sponge for everything. Read everything, right? right. Regardless of the kind of writer you want to be, what they have to understand is that their writing is just like their own personality. You are an amalgamation of everything. Like we're all amalgamations of our parents and our teachers and our community. Your writing is going to be an amalgamation of everything that you read, that your voice will then come from that. And so what I always tell young readers is read, Read voraciously, right? Read as much, and, and read, when I tell people, some, there, there's a reading for love and a reading for learning. Like there are a lot of writers or even a lot of forms, I don't necessarily like them, but you know, I, and I'll give you an example, although I, I published a couple of haiku, but I started writing haiku, well reading haiku and then writing haiku just as an exercise, right? And then it gravitated to writing and reading sonnets just as an exercise. Then lo and behold, of course, you, you, you pour that into you, and it, and, it, and it flows out. So that's my advice is always read because, you know, it's, it's like if you want to be a great basketball player, you watch great basketball players. Right. If you want to be a great golfer or a great baseball player, you watch them. If you want to be a well-crafted writer, you have to read. Up, and, 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 and not only read other well-crafted writers, but I'll end on this. I always try to tell young people that, yeah, you could build a house with a hammer and some nails and some wood. Yes, you could. But think of the mansion you could build with more tools in your box. And so the more you read, the more tools you give yourself. And then you can build any kind of house. One of the things I, I like to tell young writers is don't ever go into a situation saying, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. Like I can, I have poems that I can read at a college uh, campus. I have poems that I can read at a VFW. I have poems that I can read at a cafe, I have poems that I can read. So you always want, because you want to touch as many different people as you can. And so by being diversified in your reading, you become diversified in your writing. Thank you, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think that that's such an important, it's such an important thing. And I think that sometimes writers, especially when they're starting out, kind of think, well, I don't want to be derivative. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to take on somebody else's voice. And what I always talk to, to my students about, you know, at college is, well, you're not taking on somebody's voice. It's exactly what you said. You're becoming sort of an amalgamation of all these different voices. You're taking all this in, you know, I don't want to go to the the knee surgeon who's going to say, well, I don't really study knee surgery. I just kind of like, right. to <laughs> you know, like I'd like that person to study knee surgery. So, you know, not that poetry surgery, but, you know, I think that there's, there's the similar, the similar idea. You want that experience there. Um, and then you can kind of dive in and say, Hey, here's a thing that I learned how to do. And I love doing this thing. And you can also say, here's the thing I learned how to do. And I'm not going to do that thing. Cause that doesn't really fit with what I want to do, but you can make the choice about it. Right. As opposed exactly. to just dismissing exactly. it. Yeah, it's, it's like I tell, I tell my students that, you know, they get, they get so sick of my sports analyses and my Prince analogy. I always say, you know, what made Prince great, along with his work ethic, he had an outstanding work ethic, but what made him great was 
he was a piece, every song he wrote was a piece of Little Richard, James Brown, Jimi Hendrix, Holland Funkadelic, Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye, right? That he would just take all of that and create his own gumbo, right? Yeah. And if you look at the, the, the most well-crafted writers, no matter who they are, whether it's Amir Baraka, Alice Walker, or Margaret Walker Alexander, or Edwidge Knight, or, or Columbia Salam, or Jerry Ward, or Charlie Braxton, or K.S.A. Lehman, and Natasha Trethway, uh, you know, uh, Jasmine Ward, right? All of those writers, you could go through line by line and you could go, oh, so-and-so is influencing them here. Mm -hmm. So I was reading, I can't remember the book. I, I can't, it was about five, five, six years ago. It was a novel. And someone had suggested you should read this novel. And it was like two, two chapters in, I was like, oh, this person reads a lot of Tolstoy. Right? <laughs> and I, you know, it just kind of, it just kind of like, it just like, was it ahead? And like eight chapters in, there was a Tolstoy reference. I'm like, ah, you know. Funny, right? you know. And again, he wasn't copying Tolstoy. No, right. I, yeah, I just knew that, okay. And, and what it does, it puts me in a, in, a, in a frame to really understand what this writer's trying to do. Right. And that's the other thing I tell writers uh, that as you're reading, you need to develop your own estate. Because yeah. as readers, we don't know if you've accomplished it unless you can tell us what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And so... For young writers, right, it's I, I, when I tell students that when you submit a poem or a short story to a journal, you are agreeing to actively engage in a discourse about aesthetics. I mean, that's that's right. The writing of a poem and the writing of a short story is in many ways an, an, an experiment and an exercise in a discourse in aesthetics. Right. So if you don't have a, a firm understanding of your own aesthetic, right, what is it that you're attempting to accomplish, then how do you know that you've actually accomplished it? If you don't have some clear notion of this is what I'm trying to do. There's you you want to be part of the conversation, right? Like there's always a conversation going on. You want to be able to kind of hold up your exactly. end, there, right? Exactly. So uh, yeah, I love that. I always like to end on something that has nothing to do with what we've been talking about. Although actually you gave me a nice segue there a second ago by bringing up Prince. So in addition to being a writer, you are also a Prince scholar. So, and I, I recognize this may be like an unfairly hard question, but what is your favorite Prince song? Oh my goodness! Uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say I have a favorite one, but one I, I I return to a lot when people ask me this question. In two thousand nine, he had this song "Colonized Mind," and I like "Colonized Mind" because in two thousand nine, long after he'd become uh, an icon, long after he'd become this established genius, he was still pushing himself musically and thematically. Mm -hmm. Right? He had recently you know, changed his religion and was taking a lot of flags for that. Also, they were still saying, well, you ain't as funky as you used to be, right? You, you're not as, right? And he's like, oh, he said, oh, yeah, I, I'm not as bad as I used to be. I'm not, oh, okay. Well, check out, check out this guitar solo, <laughs> right? Right, 20 years after my biggest hit, check this guitar solo. And so just, you know that that's someone who's still on fire for and loving their art. And so I love Colonized Mind because the, the guitar solo, in fact, the guitar intro is actually my, uh, what do you call it, your, your ringtone or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, I, that guitar, when I set my alarm, that's with the guitar solo from Colonized Mind. Go, man, 20 years after his, his biggest hit, he was still playing guitar like he was searching for answers. And just the lyrical notion of, oh, you guys are going to criticize me because I want to grow. He said, no, 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 I'm going to continue to grow as an artist because I'm continuing to grow as a human being. So that's why I, I, when people ask me that, it may not be, you know, if you ask me tomorrow what my favorite song would be, I don't know. But that song really represents an artist 
who never stopped growing and understood that it, it was his job that as he grew, his art was supposed to grow. And I love, I love what you said. You said um, he was playing the, playing the guitar like he was searching for answers. And I think that's yeah. such a great way to think about that and just to think about art in general. I mean, I think that that applies to poetry too. I, I love poems that ask questions, you know, and that kind of ask us to consider questions and are always kind of trying to find their, their best form or their best approach. So thank you. I love that. All right. And now if we wanted to find more of your work, where could you point us to? You go to my website, Psychedelic Literature, and it's you know just like it is, uh, Psychedelic Literature. Like, man, you could have chose the easier word. I got to type psychedelic. <laughs> what, what's, what's up with this type psychedelic all the way out? What's wrong with you? So, yeah, and I remember when I was building a website, I was like, yeah, this is, I wish I had an easier word. This is, no one's going to type all this out to get here. Like, I realized, it was like, but you already had a website. So now you got the website. You're like, you, you linked in. And now, yeah, man. Yeah, it is. So, so, yeah, so you go to psychedelic literature, uh, all my books and different writings and things about that. And all my books are also at Amazon and Barnes. Awesome. Thank you. We could also just Google your name if we find that easier to spell. Than yeah, much easier. There we go. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, Celie McGinnis, for talking with me today. I so enjoyed getting to talk to you and hear your work and your advice and your insights about poetry and art and, and prints. And I just really appreciate you taking the time today. And before we go, I just want to say thank you for creating this platform. Thank you for, you have you have been doing wonderful work uh, for poetry before becoming our poet laureate. You are still doing excellent work. You're representing the state and you're representing us so well. And this platform is another example of that. So all, you know, us poets, we support you, we're behind you, and we're going to keep this thing going. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. I really appreciate that. Thank you. And I'm just so thrilled that I get to do this podcast and talk to all these incredible poets that are just hanging out in Mississippi. So, I mean, we've got an amazing, an amazing group of poets here. So thank you, Celie McGinnis. And thank you all for listening to the Mississippi Poetry Podcast, where poetry comes alive. <laughs> <laughs>